0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, a hero's welcome for Omar Cotter. A CBC leadership candidate takes aim at cancel culture and what the road to a better equalization deal looks like for Alberta. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hey, welcome everyone to another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, Canada's most reverent talk show, and I thank you very much for tuning in. Going to be talking about Western alienation later on in the program, and specifically whether Alberta can drive this discussion without national buy-in. And this is something that we see unfolding, a dialogue about whether Alberta, which under Jason Kenney's government, is at least trying to advance this fair deal notion, can force the federal government to the table, essentially. So we'll be talking about that, and a great essay that was written on the subject by a University of Calgary professor later on in the show. Also, a couple of little odds and ends that have come up in the last week, such as the effects of a compelling campaign launch video, which I know is just a riveting topic, but bear with me. It's an interesting video we saw from Aaron O'Toole this week. But I have to begin with a little bit of personal news in the sense that it involves something I'm going to be doing. It's not me in the capacity as Andrew Lawton, the random guy, but Andrew Lawton, the True North fellow and host of the Andrew Lawton Show. On February 10th, which is, I guess, less than two weeks away, I'm going to be going to Halifax, where I will be attending to report on Omar Cotter's keynote address at Dalhousie University. This is his first time speaking at a live public event. He did appear before a studio audience on that CBC show last year, uh, Tout le monde en d'Emparle, but this is the first time he's uh, putting himself forward like this to speak before an audience at a ticketed event, a public event. I'm going to be there. And this is something that I will say, first off, we are crowdfunding because it's important that we, as an organization, not getting that media bailout money are able to lean on our supporters to do the work that we're doing. But I also think it's important that there is a fair and honest accounting of what he talks about and what unfolds at that event. And True North, as it so happens, broke the story of this event, which had been announced by Dalhousie, but didn't get any coverage or pickup. And True North reported on it. It's called Children's Rights Upfront: Preventing the Recruitment and Use of Children in Violence. It's an event at Dalhousie co-hosted with the Romeo Dallaire Child Soldiers Initiative And at this event, Omar Cotter is going to be speaking alongside Ishmael Beya, moderated by a CBC host. So you've got all the boxes checked here, and that's uh, Nala Ayed. And as the event description says, it's, quote, a rare opportunity for public discussion around the complex issue of child soldiers. Mr. Cotter and Mr. Beya will highlight their experience in conflict and why they are passionate about the protection of of children. Okay, let's unpack this a little bit if we can. The child soldier narrative is an important one to dismantle here because child soldiers are victims. When we hear child soldiers, that has a very specific meaning. Child soldier designation was actually something that never applied to Omar Khadr and this was testified to by Howard Anglin who's a lawyer formerly the executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation also worked in Stephen Harper's prime minister's office and the whole point about this dynamic is that if you call him a child soldier it naturally follows that everything else has to be awash that nothing else matters and Omar Khadr is, as a matter of fact, and as a matter of law, a convicted murderer and terrorist. Now, we understand he wants to appeal that murder conviction. We understand he has since recanted his confession when he confessed to throwing the grenade that killed Sergeant Christopher Spear and injured uh, Sergeant Lane Morris. We ultimately have this idea that has been put forward, that we are not to criticize him because, oh, he's just a child soldier. And there is a, a huge, huge problem with this. Number one, doesn't apply as a matter of law, given the circumstances, and we'll talk about those very shortly. But also, I think the bigger dynamic here is that we are to accept the media narrative that this is not someone who can be challenged, not someone who can be questioned, and not someone who should be criticized, but rather someone who should be celebrated. And I said a couple of years ago, I've been following the Cotter case for quite some time, that if you accept at face value what the media is saying, they're going beyond just the idea that you can't criticize him they're saying this is something to be celebrated and this is why he's been getting the red carpet treatment i remember when he first was released from custody he was released on bail and he went to his lawyer's house in edmonton dennis edney's house and he had a little mini press conference in the driveway and what happened in that was one of the questions was like what are you having for dinner tonight I recall. And what are you most looking forward to doing? And questions that you would never see asked of anyone else who had just been released on bail from a murder conviction. It just wouldn't happen. So this double standard that the media has had with him is absolutely insane, and it's still going on. And the more time passes between his release from jail and now, or the more time passes from when that initial firefight in Afghanistan happened and now, the easier it becomes to whitewash everything that's happened in Omar Khadr's life. And the facts of the case are actually quite simple. He went over as a teenager to Afghanistan was part of a a terrorist group. His father was an Al-Qaeda financier. He was not just involved in that firefight where he had, again, previously confessed to throwing the grenade. He was also on video making IEDs. And we know that IEDs have killed dozens of soldiers, Canadian and other allied forces. He may have even more blood on his hands than we previously acknowledged or previously understood. That's the reality of Omar Khadr. And this is a matter of fact. This is a matter of public record. Now, whether he has renounced terrorism, whether he has renounced radicalism, whether he condemns the family members that if you accept the victim narrative were the ones who victimized him, these are relevant questions that I don't see asked. Now, he's done the interviews with the Toronto Star and he's only really done interviews with people that are going to give him softball questions. In fact, at that press conference uh, with Dennis Edney at his side, one of the things that Dennis Edney said at the beginning is if we hear any questions we don't like we're going inside so there was basically a groundwork laid there that you could only ask him questions that would please omar cotter's legal team so let's have an honest and fair discussion of omar cotter but that involves if he is going to go down this road of being a public figure answering these questions and so far that's not happening so far though no one is actually asking them the media is not asking them I mean, this event is moderated by a CBC journalist. He's being presented as a keynote speaker. So already CBC has its personality complicit in an event that is aimed at promoting him in a positive light. So CBC, which expects us to believe it's fair and transparent and unbiased and accountable and all of these things, CBC is driving This event and the discussion of the event, and it's not going to be a hardball question because the basis of the event is that Omar Khadr is a victim and not to be criticized. And this is happening at Dalhousie University, potentially with public money, which brings me to the interesting aside to this discussion, which I think is not the most important aspect of it, but still is important to look at, which is whether he is being paid by Dalhousie. Now, it is a free country, yes, but I also think that with that freedom does not come a guarantee of being subsidized. So if Dalhousie is using tuition money or government money to pay for Omar Cotter, I think the taxpayers have a right to know. And I asked that. I asked the Dalhousie University Media Relations team. I asked the Romeo Dallaire Child Soldiers Initiative. And they wouldn't even respond to a very simple question. Is Omar Cotter receiving a speaking fee or honorarium? That was the question. Is Omar Khadr receiving any speaking fee or honorarium for his participation in the event? And even if he's not, you still have to deal with travel from Alberta, accommodations, stuff like that, but just would not answer the question. And I think everyone on Twitter was dealing with the idea that, oh, well, if there's not answering, the answer's probably yes. But this is, I think, a relevant aspect of it. Now, I am, if you have not heard, a free speech absolutist. I believe in free speech rights. I believe in free speech on campuses. I believe in free speech for Canadians. And that includes, in my view, Omar Khadr. It does. It includes Omar Khadr. If he is walking free and should be behind bars, that is a failure of the justice system. But the answer to a failure of one system is not to deprive rights that are ultimately would the that depriving would ultimately indicate failure in another system so i believe that if he is in the eyes of the law walking around free he has a right to speak freely as an individual now this does not mean that he has the right to be guaranteed a platform It also does not mean that he has the right to be subsidized, which gets back to the question of who's paying. Now, I do not have any tolerance for deplatforming. So I will be very upset if someone pulls a fire alarm to cancel his speech like people do for conservative speakers or if people shout him down when he's trying to talk and basically disrupt the event so that it can't go on. This is not what I'm about and I don't think it's what anyone else should be about. It is, in my view, a gross error in judgment that he was invited It speaks volumes about the priorities of Dalhousie and of the Romeo Dallaire Child Soldiers Initiative that he was invited. But it is their event. And in this particular context, the proper course of action is to let it go on. And that's why I'm going there. Lest there be any doubt, I'm not going to protest. I'm not going to demonstrate. I'm going to report what he says is going to enter the public record. And because the media has not been asking him any tough questions, we have very little from him to really establish what it is that he thinks and what it is that he feels. And I actually got into a a bit of a Twitter back and forth, I won't say a fight, with Jordan Goldstein, a name that may ring a bell because he was on the show last week. And he took aim at a True North petition that was calling on people to sign and remind Dalhousie that Omar Khadr is a convicted terrorist and murderer. And what I said to Jordan is that it's not my petition, so I I don't have any skin in the game there, but I I do think that it's important to note the petition that True North is doing or did was not to have the speech cancelled. If anything, it was to have the proper context of the speech and of the speaker understood it was to have people remember what omar cotter's background is now jordan said yeah but you know people do this with conservative speakers get them labeled a racist a transphobe and 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 i understand the place he's coming from and and jordan goldstein is coming at that not from a place of being a sycophant for omar cotter but similarly being a, a free speech absolutist so it was something that i very much took as a constructive dialogue And it actually got me thinking a fair bit about this. Is Omar Khadr the same as anyone else who wanted to speak at a campus in the eyes of the law? And at this point, yes. I mean, he's had some restrictions and many of them have been taken away. I don't know which ones are left, but speaking rights were never curbed. So in the sense that he has a constitutionally protected free speech, I agree. And in the sense that he has a guarantee of a platform, like I said before, no one has an obligation to be invited and paid a speaking fee by a university. But if they decide to do that, that is their and by extension his platform. So the answer to this is not to shut it down, it is not to silence. But I also... Don't think that that's the discussion people are having when we say, what on earth are you thinking? The guy is a convicted murderer. The guy is a convicted terrorist. We're talking about a guy who served time in Guantanamo Bay, which does not make him a victim. It reminds us of the circumstances that led to that. And a guy who, on one hand, says, oh, well, no, it's just my father and and that, but still has not condemned or denounced that family. In fact, his sister, Zainab Khadr, who has said that even if he did kill Sergeant Christopher Spear, it's not a bad thing. She's lionized and supported Osama bin Laden. He wanted to get bail restrictions eased so that he could have a better relationship with her, so that he could visit her without supervision and talk to her. So correct me if I'm wrong, but if your family was the problem and your uh, past actions were a result of your family's mistakes, why would you want to actively fight to be in touch and in communication with that very same family? And this is one of the several anomalies that we see in the Omar Cotter case. And again, an aspect of this that the media just is not discussing and needs to discuss. So I get very frustrated when people say, oh, he was just a boy. Okay, he was young. He was 15. And I also think we do as a society need to do a better job at letting people grow, giving them the opportunity to grow, giving second chances when they're due. But we're not talking about a guy who he tweeted something unpleasant when he was 15. We're talking about a guy who, by his own confession, killed someone and was involved in a family and an organization and a network that was in fact linked with radicalism and family that continues to have links to radicalism and to extremism. So you can't say these aren't relevant questions. You can't say he gets a permanent pass. And you can't say that this is the guy that should be on the cross-country lecture circuit, getting potentially subsidized by taxpayers and getting CBC contributing to the red carpet treatment, which is exactly what's happening when CBC is moderating this exclusive event. So let's be honest here, the people that are saying we shouldn't ask these questions, the people that are giving him this red carpet treatment are people that are essentially turning a blind eye to extremism. They're turning a blind eye to terrorism, and they're turning a blind eye to one of the most notable examples in Canada of radicalism and terrorism. And that is what happened with Omar Khadr overseas and the family network that was a very high rank. These were not junior players in Al Qaeda. His father was part of that inner circle. Bin Laden was at one of the sisters' weddings. And then it all comes full circle because she was later married to Joshua Boyle. But I won't even get into the uh, Joshua Boyle stuff in this particular episode of the show. So these are all real questions and the media just isn't asking them. And to challenge Omar Cotter to say, hey, I think we need to understand who he is and what he is and what he said and what he's done is not anti-free speech. You can support his right to speak while criticizing the judgment of those who are making that speech happen. And you can support the right for people to say, yes, I'm a big fan of Omar Cotter, while also not being a fan of, the narrative that they're peddling, which is one that just doesn't hold up under scrutiny. So I still continue to believe that sunlight is the best disinfectant, which is why we're going to Dalhousie. I'm bringing a videographer there. Got my tickets to the event. We're going to watch. And yeah, I am going to legitimately listen. And I must stress, I don't want people to shut it down. This is something that would make us no better than the left and its cancel culture that we decry in every other set of circumstances. And yes, I realize there's a difference between someone who's a convicted terrorist and Jordan Peterson and Megan Murphy. I I mean, I I don't think there's any equivalence there. But I do think it's amusing to look at the double standard of the left. The same people that think Jordan Peterson's uh, opinions on gender identity are violence are fully prepared to accept someone who has actually been convicted of violence, which I find is just brazenly hypocritical. But again, we're, we're not talking about stooping to that level. So we're going to go there. If you can contribute to this, like I said, we don't get the $600 million bailout fund. Uh, you can head on over to tnc.news slash donate, or if you just go to andrewlawtonshow.com, there's a link to donate, and we'll actually be doing the show live from Halifax the day after the event. So we'll do a bit of a post-mortem of what's happened there. We got to take a quick break when we come back more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. You know, the downside of doing a show that's pre-recorded, even if it's recorded a few hours before it's released, instead of doing something live, is that you sometimes just narrowly miss news which is exactly what happened last week on the show when we had a great chat with Spencer Fernando. We were talking about the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race, had a grand old time. And then literally as the episode was uploading to YouTube and iTunes and all of these other services, the news broke that Pierre Polyev was bowing out of the Conservative leadership race. And at this point, it's too late to do anything about it. And it was great, though, because in the interview, Spencer Fernando was like, oh, yeah, you know, I think Pierre Polyev's got a really good shot. And then uh, as people listen to that, he's already gone. So uh, that is the magic of radio falling apart. But it is interesting still, nonetheless. And one of the things is that with Pierre Polyev out of the race, it's really left a lot of room on the right because Peter McKay is... Many things, not a fire-breathing blue Tory, though. So it's left some room on the right, and we've seen in this vacuum some renewed interest from people that previously said they were out. Most notably, Candace Bergen, who said she was out, and now she says, well, you know, according to a National Post piece, she is considering it. You also have the idea of potentially now Aaron O'Toole uh, running as a fire-breathing blue Tory, which brings me to his launch video, which I actually thought was pretty great. Why don't you take a look at this?
1: Who's going to fight for
0: auto workers who just saw the last car roll off the line? Who's going to fight for forestry workers who just watched another mill close? Who's going to stand up for those who wear a uniform of
1: service to protect us at home and abroad? Who's going to defend our history, our institutions against attacks from cancel culture and the radical left? The stakes are high for Canada.
0: I'm Aaron O'Toole, and I'm running to unite Conservatives on the path to victory. Yeah, using terms like cancel culture and radical left. These are things that I do. They're not things I expect politicians to. So it certainly made my ears perk up when I saw and heard Aaron O'Toole uh, take aim at that. And I, I think the particular context was just the egregious tend we see, uh, tendency we see of removing statues because there was actually the image behind a, of one such statue being removed. I believe that one was from Victoria. But this... Idea that he is going to be taking aim at the radical left is an encouraging one. It's not the Aaron O'Toole we've seen historically. I've always seen him as a bit more of a consensus builder, but he also said in a follow up in a National Post article uh, that I'm going to pull up that the party can't be a mushy middle party. And I think this was actually fascinating because Aaron O'Toole was saying that it will just be a liberal party if Peter McKay is the leader and Aaron O'Toole needs to be the leader for it to remain a conservative principled party. So this is something that I think is very fascinating because Aaron O'Toole is a smart guy. He's a veteran. He is someone who's been in the private sector as well. He was veterans affairs minister. So he's got experience inside and outside of government. And he also knows that the Conservative Party needs to be a Conservative Party. And this is something I was talking about weeks ago, I think in the very first episode of the show, that if the Conservative Party just becomes this extension of the Canadian centrism fantasy, that, ah, well, it's a party that, you know, just depends, as many people have heard me say before, just basically a list of promises with blue colors. So I think that, the conservative party needs to take this leadership race and really go back to the basics and say, what are our non-negotiables? What do we believe? What are the things that we'd like? And, and what are the things that you, you can't live without as a party and as a movement? And if the answer to that is something like take the carbon tax, there are conservatives that like the carbon tax, apparently. Michael Chong got more than one vote. So apparently in 2017 in the leadership race, there are conservatives that like the carbon tax. Well, the conservative party is not a pro-carbon tax party. So if you're a conservative who likes a carbon tax, is that a non-negotiable? If so, you're not a conservative. You're not a conservative in the current context, which means that the conservative movement has to be filled with people that are prepared to take stock of their values, of the party's values, and decide... Is this a party in which I fit? Is this a tent that there's room for me under? And this is the dynamic we've talked about with social conservatives in the past, where they have to decide okay, you know, maybe the party is not a a pro life party, but is it a party that has a respect and an allowance for pro lifers? And if the answer to that is yes, that might be enough for a pro life conservative to say, all right, I have a place in the Conservative Party. Whereas if the party has a leader that's actively hostile to that, and we talked about that uh, Pierre Polyev comment in La Presse where he was basically saying, you know, you're not going to at all have an inch in my party. So this is where there's going to be a lot of introspection, I hope. And Aaron O'Toole, is saying, listen, we've got to be a conservative party. Now, if he is authentic in this, and this is something that'll come up when we sit down for an interview throughout the course of this leadership campaign, then I think he's really going to take a good chunk of support from Peter McKay. And, pretty much pick up a lot of the support that Pierre Polyev would have had, who seemed to be previously the one running as that blue Tory. So that is, I think, fascinating. And and just on the the note of political videos here. So his launch video, I thought was great for a couple of reasons. I think it was punchy. It gave a, a bit of his story. It had all the right notes for conservatives. You look at Peter McKay's on The Alternative. And epileptics should not watch it. It's just like flashing rapidly words at you. But if you string the words together, it's like someone did political slogans by Mad Libs. It's like, Canadians are strong because Canadians make it strong. And strong Canadians strong make strongman Canadians and i actually i think that's his uh, slogan for the general election campaign already done so my gift to you peter mckay and then like canadians are f- or canada's free because canadians make it free and like, if you look at these i'm like i have no idea what he's saying I have no idea what he stands for. I have no idea. And again, I'm going to listen. I'm waiting for the platforms. And if he comes out and has a really great, solid platform, I'll reevaluate. But I get a lot more of what Aaron O'Toole stands for from Aaron O'Toole's launch video than I do about what Peter McKay stands for from Peter McKay's launch video. And that's a huge problem because when you're running, not to Canadians, but you're running and directing a campaign only towards conservative members or potential conservative members, you got to tell them what kind of conservative you are, and you've got to tell them what kind of conservative party you want. And if you don't do that, it's easy to just blend in and be noise, especially if there is a larger field of candidates, Uh, probably not 2017 large, but still you've got a number of people that are running I think our tally I don't even know the number now but we're up to three four people from caucus that are well three people from caucus plus Peter McKay who's formerly from caucus you've got at least four people from outside of elected office so you're already up to eight right there uh, nine because Rick Peterson also got in he got 0.67 percent of the vote last time and uh, maybe this is his year who knows so that's something that will be interesting to watch as well Just as a a bit of an odd one, I say that I like politicians to give you some clarity about what they stand for. Sometimes they give you too much clarity, such as the case with Luke Fernandez, a Quebec politician who suggested that the coronavirus has had a positive outcome for the city of Wuhan in China because it has reduced the carbon footprint In Wuhan, China. Yes, he said that there is no automobile traffic, no air flights, and now Wuhan is the only city that will meet its greenhouse gas reduction targets. The way to this necessary degrowth will happen when all the debates have been in vain. And he claimed uh, when he was criticized that he was just trying to convey that we need to take climate action. And I don't think when you celebrate that something that killed people has lowered the carbon impact that that is the most effective climate change argument although previously and by previously i mean like 3 days prior uh, Monsieur Fernandez had announced that perhaps legalized suicide, assisted suicide, should be available for people who want to reduce their uh, carbon footprint. And there's no better way to reduce your carbon footprint than by dropping dead, apparently. So uh, this is going to be the next frontier as the government goes through the assisted suicide battles. But he, he had said, could we, quote, for environmental, social, and economic reasons, decide that we want to receive help to die so as not to be a burden for our family or society in general uh so this is great so now if you're mentally ill and you want to uh, commit suicide uh you just have to claim you're doing it for the environment and and no one can stop you my goodness quebec i mean quebec it's a part of the country i get it but No politician in Ontario or Alberta could get away with that. So uh, maybe there's something to learn from Quebec, at least, about, you know, electing more interesting politicians. We've got to take a quick break when we come back talking about equalization and Western alienation here on The Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back. The topic of Western alienation is a big one and one that I hear nonstop from people. And I think that the longer it goes on, the more time passes from the federal election, the more pessimistic a lot of Albertans are that Alberta will have a seat at the table and Alberta will get a, a fair deal. And that's actually the name of the panel that the Alberta government has convened, the fair panel. And I spoke about this back in a Red Deer at the Freedom Talk with Drew Barnes and MLA, with Danny Hozak this idea of what it would take and and that conference was you may remember broken up into three parts there was uh, people who believe in separation people who believe in confederation and the what ifs the people who okay if we were to do it what would we have to keep in mind what would it we have to look at And I think that the anger is certainly there, the frustration is there, but what would that process look like? What needs to happen to get there? I want to talk about an aspect of this with Professor Reiner Knopf, who's a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Calgary and a Fraser Institute senior fellow. He wrote an essay on this, Refining Alberta's Equalization Gambit, looking at uh, really the constitutional realities of the dynamics that Jason Kenney wants to inject into this. Professor joins me on the line. Now, thank you very much for joining me. It's good to talk to you, sir. Well,
1: thanks for having me on.
0: So, let's talk about this idea of how you get to that discussion because there seems to be a lot of disagreement from people, certainly those outside of Alberta, about whether Alberta can force this national dialogue, specifically an equalization.
1: Well, it's a it's a very good question. Um... I mean the title of my piece is "Refining Jason Kenney's Equalization Gambit," and, and let's think a little bit about what gambit means. It, uh, it's a it's a move in a game like chess or a political game uh, where you uh, take the risk of losing something in order to gain an advantage elsewhere. And I think that's what uh, uh, Premier Kennedy is is doing here. Um, he he wants. He, you know, he, wants, he says he wants to take equalization out of the Constitution, uh, but he knows that that requires a, uh, an amendment uh, getting the consent of Ottawa and seven provinces, having 50 percent of the population, and he knows that's highly unlikely, impossible, I would say. Uh, so what's his real goal? Uh, he's risking a loss there. Well, he just wants to get people to the constitutional negotiating table so he can fight his good fight for fairness against things like discriminatory tanker bans, uh, um, no more pipelines laws, uh, getting the uh, uh, TMX pipeline built. Um, And if things don't work in the regular political fashion, uh, then he's saying, well, we'll have a constitutional conference on uh, an equalization amendment in order to elevate our fight for fairness to the top of the national agenda. And that, of course, assumes that he can force people to come to the negotiating table. He thinks he can do that with a referendum. Uh, The point of my paper is to argue that that's not enough. Um, He's been bedazzled by arguments about referendum. He still has to have one, uh, but he needs another tactic.
0: So let's talk about two aspects of this. I want to get to what that other tactic might look like in a moment, but, but there is, uh, I think, an impracticality in that if you can't get other provinces to agree or the country to agree on a lot of those policy issues you mentioned, like pipelines and energy, how likely is it you're going to get them to agree on, on constitutional reforms, which have a, a much higher threshold, as you mentioned earlier, to get anything done?
1: Well, it's getting them to the constitutional table uh, is a way of, uh, as as Kenny keeps saying, elevating the issue higher up. You don't actually have to get an equalization amendment. You just have to get them around the table to talk about these things. Uh, he, he, He says many times that no particular outcome is guaranteed. Um, it's just let's get everybody around the table. I mean, he's trying to do all of this politically in many, many other ways now, uh, and and he's quite clear that if some of the things that I mentioned a few moments ago about uh, you know the TMX pipeline getting built, uh, some modification of pipelines law, uh, scrapping discriminatory tanker bans, if some of those things happen, then he won't pursue this this other option
0: let's talk about the duty to negotiate because this was you note in your paper uh, declared by the Supreme Court in the 1998 uh, secession reference as a, a tool in Kenny's view to bring reluctant governments to the table but you say there's uh, not there, there still is a flaw to his belief there
1: well uh, that case uh, the 1998 secession reference was about Quebec secession. And uh, the court introduced this idea of a duty to negotiate. Uh, if Quebecers voted uh, on a, a clear majority, voted in favor of a clear question on secession, there was a duty of the rest of the country to negotiate. Everybody was bedazzled by this new duty to negotiate, and the argument ever since has been mostly about whether that applies outside the secession, outside the secession context. Sorry. Uh, And, uh, 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 Kenny thinks it does, Uh, but the vast majority of constitutional scholars, now including me, I've changed my mind on this, uh, think it does not. Uh, There there are too many strong arguments against that, but what what nobody's paying attention to and what I'm trying to focus some attention on is that uh, the Supreme Court in that same case did say. In very general language, that there was a duty to negotiate uh, just about any kind of amendment, including an equalization amendment, uh, that requires multilateral consent uh, uh, if that's if that's initiated in the constitutionally prescribed manner. What's right in the Constitution Act, 1982, which is legislatively initiating it through a legislative resolution. It's a very simple thing. It's a lot simpler than. Then, then a referendum, Kenny still has to have his referendum for reasons we can talk about. Uh, but, uh, but if he relies just on that, he's inviting other governments to ignore him, pointing to all the constitutional scholars who say that a referendum can't force anybody to the table except in the case of secession.
0: So, I mean, there are two aspects to this. There, there's obviously the political route that he might take and how that impacts the, the standing of Alberta and other provinces and the federal government, public opinion. And then there's the legal route. And which would you say on the legal side is the path of least resistance to get that outcome that Alberta wants?
1: Uh, well, uh, I mean, path of least resistance is the right formulation. There, 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 there will always be resistance. Um, but, uh, the path of least resistance, he has to have a referendum because, well, uh, uh, let me turn it around. He has to introduce a legislative resolution in favor of an amendment on equalization. That will get people to, I mean, that, that clearly triggers uh, the duty to negotiate laid down by the uh, 1998 secession reference. He still has to have a referendum because Alberta has a law on the books. Uh, called the Constitutional Referendum Act, which says we will not introduce a a resolution on a constitutional amendment, the constitutionally prescribed uh, uh, mechanism. We will not do that unless we've had a referendum first. But he does have to do, so I'm saying he's got to do both. He still has to have his referendum, but he can't just rely on that to bring people to the table.
0: So the referendum, though, is this I mean, I would argue that the referendum is necessary to obviously go through those legal checkboxes that need to be checked, as you mentioned. But I think that's also important on the political side as well, because he needs to basically show that he's got a lot of strength going into any negotiation.
1: That's true. Uh, There's a there's a political dimension to this. So let's, let's imagine, uh, uh, Jason Kenney holds a referendum, he gets a massive support to delete equalization from the Constitution. He calls up all his fellow premiers, and he says, let's come to the negotiating table. And uh, some of them say, no. And he says, well, you have to, because the Quebec secession reference said you did. But they might come because of, because of the political pressure you're talking about, but they can ignore him if they want to. And they will ignore him if they really want to. Uh, if he adds this very simple second step of the legislative resolution that's prescribed in the Constitution, they can't ignore him. That's all. I mean, people, people, can, people can negotiate at any time for any reason. The question is, can he force them to?
0: Yeah, but, and I also, though, think that old adage that leading a horse to water doesn't mean you can make a drink applies here, is that even if you can compel people to the table, there's no guarantee of any outcome, or certainly not a favorable one.
1: And, and, and he himself, uh, Premier Kennedy, says that consistently when he talks about this. He says there is no guaranteed outcome. Uh, he also indicates that we're not going to do this for a couple of years unless other things fail. Uh, it's kind of a last resort <laughs> mechanism. There is no guaranteed outcome, but it will at least force things a little higher on the agenda by putting everybody around. The, they may not stay around the table very long. They may tell them to, you know, forget about it. Uh, but that that itself provides opportunities for. Uh,
0: Uh, for political pressure. I I know it gets outside of the essay uh, specifically in this case, but I I do think there's a a worthwhile point uh, to put to the table here. Do you think that just with looking at other dynamics in Canadian history and and even in Quebec's case, do you think that the solution is going to come from outside of the Constitution here?
1: Well, I think ultimately it will. Uh, But, you know, Peter Russell uh, years ago wrote a very famous piece on uh, the political use of legal resources. <laughs> and uh, constitutional arguments are always uh, invoked in uh, political controversies or certain kinds of political controversies. Legal cases provide legal resources that you know each side will will, will try to leverage. and that's what this is all about. I mean it, it's ultimately a political question for, for sure that's the case. But uh, but legalities make a difference.
0: Very much so. The essay is Refining Alberta's Equalization Gambit. The author, University of Calgary Political Science Professor Emeritus Reiner Knopf. Professor, thanks very much for your time today. Great chatting. My pleasure. And I don't know whether that's a cheery note or not for Albertans that are wanting more independence. I mean, obviously the answer is that there's no such thing as a seamless route to get what you are looking for out there. But I also think that It stresses that the referendum is pivotal, not just on the political side, but also on the legal side. So one way or another, there needs to be uh, public input on this, and and I would say public buy-in from Albertans. So we'll be following the Western alienation dialogue, and I'm actually going to be in April back at another conference on this subject. I was at one in November in Red Deer, and I think the, the other one's in Red Deer again. Uh, the Freedom Talk conference put on by Danny Hozak, who I ended up interviewing for True North. And we'll be talking a lot, especially as the FAIR panel will have gone further along about where things are standing there. But that's coming up in a few months. we got to get to that point first. In the meantime, thank you all for tuning into the show. Thanks to Reiner Knopp and everyone who supports the program. We'll talk to you in a couple of days. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada.